In the field of human conflict, but so much owed by so many to so few. My name is Melina Froidure. I study humanitarian action, and today with me in the studio are Colin, uh, and I study peace and development studies. Mm-hmm. As well as Isaac, I am studying political science. Great. So today's episode will focus on the recent wave of coups in West Africa, as well as different kinds of instability that are affecting the region. It indeed seemed to us that many political events had recently unfolded in West Africa and that we should probably give a brief summary or reminder of what their latest developments were. Even though geographic terms are ever-contested con- ever social constructs, we need to define first what we call West Africa. According to the UN, the region stretches from Mauritania to Liberia in the West and from Nigeria to Niger in the east, thus encompassing 17 states. Covering approximately one quarter of uh, the African continent, West Africa contains a broad range of ecosystems, bioclimatic regions and habitats, from rainforest to desert. This very diverse area is the fastest growing region on the African continent in economic and demographic terms, driven especially by Nigeria, that is sometimes described as the African giant. Nigeria has also attracted journalists' attention for its music and cinema industry, and Ghana's capital, Accra, is said to become a major art hub with, if not global, at least regional resonance. But unfortunately, West Africa hardly makes the headlines for its vibrant creative scenes or rich cultural heritage. On the contrary, we mostly hear from the region in relation to security issues. And it is true that it has been affected by conflict, religious extremism, political instability quite a lot. The region's post-colonial history has been punctuated by coups, coup d'état. A study by the World Bank revealed that West Africa has witnessed the most number of military takeovers on the African continent from 1960 to 2012. And this very African continent has seen, has seen more than 200 coups, the most of any region, with more than 100 being successful. Uh, 
Such evidence has even led certain scholars and journalists to talk about a coup belt in West Africa and the Sahel region. But I really don't like this ex expression. I believe that it is very necessary to go beyond traditional narratives that portray West Africa as plagued with conflict and bad governance, including so-called endemic corruption. And that's, that's exactly what we will try to do in this episode. So bear with us. We'll be right back after a music break. You just heard Another Life by Milefer Yanya on Student Radio Nitio Takomenilia. And we are Radio UF broadcasting today um, about the latest coups in West Africa. And so, what are those coups and events we've been evoking without actually naming them? What has recently happened? Let's travel back in time for a little bit. So the, the, the latest event took place in Guinea-Bissau on February the 1st of this year. Heavy gunfire rang from government buildings in the capital, Bissau. Gunmen attempted to kill President Umbaro Sissoko Mbalo, the prime minister and all the cabinet. President Mbalo declared that the attack was probably linked with his war on drugs, but it is still unclear who was behind the attacks. Investigations are underway. A week before that, on January the 24th, President Roque-Marc Christian Caboret of Burkina Faso was toppled by Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Sandaogo d'Amiba. Among the factors lead leading to Caboret's ousting are frustrations about his failure to tackle jihadist attacks in the north of the country, as well as his inability to improve the economic situation. Even though Chad is not formally part of West Africa, we have to mention that there too. That there too, the military took power when President Idris Deby died of injuries after clashes with rebels in the north of the country last April, so 2021. The political move has been qualified as a covert coup as the army installed Deby's son, a military commander, as the head of the Transitional Military Council. The government and the parliament have been dissolved and the constitution suspended. Then, a few months prior to that, you had a coup in, oh, a coup attempt in Nigeria at the end of March, where a military unit attempted to take over the presidential palace in Niam, yeah, the Niamey, the capital of uh, Ni Niger, days before the inauguration, or two days specifically before the inauguration of the newly elected uh, president, Mohamed Basyum. The coup was attributed to the to a local military captain in Niamey following a jihadist massacre in Tilia that claimed 137 lives a couple of weeks prior. Thank you, Isaac. And even before that, um, in 2021, there have also been a coup in Mali. Asimi Goita, who served as Mali's vice president under transitional president uh, Ba Endao and Prime Minister Mokhtar Wuan seized power in late May after accusing, accusing them of failing to consult him about a cabinet reshuffle, reshuffle that would have been replaced that would have replaced the defense and security ministers who were both military officers. Um, but what's interesting is that this has been labeled as a coup within a coup because nine months before that, um, yeah, a coup ended the presidency of Ibrahim Boubacar Keita. 
Keita was overturned by breakaway elements of the Malian armed forces. So this was an attempt <laughs> to provide you with the um, latest coups and uh, political events in West Africa. And we'll be back right after the break. You just heard Mano by Jirel on Student Radio Nitio Takomini. <laughs> We are Radio UF, broadcasting today about the recent coups in West Africa. And what's quite interesting is that in a lot of those countries, we find um, a commonality, which is um, French military presence or um, colonial history with France. And Isaac will delve a bit more into that. Yes, so starting... At the end of the colonial era, around the mid-20th century, France still kept in contact with its former colonies through economic ties, primarily. And then, towards the end of the century, especially ramping up with the 1990s, France has maintained an ever-present military on, on location in an effort specifically to defend, to defend France, which, with reoccurring Muslim or jihadist terrorist attacks in France, uh, which was even increased specifically in 2014 when Operation Barkan was initialized under the then French President Holland. Uh, and even though Sarkozy, Holland and now Macron are very different politically, as I've been told, within the country on the stance of how or whether or not France should have a military presence in West Africa, the answer is, of course. Not only because of the French interests, for, for example, in Niger, French, the French state-owned company Areva uh, is in charge of extracting uranium, where, fr where Niger is the fourth largest producer But otherwise, back to the Operation Barkan, which is uh, specifically targeted at terrorist activity in the Shahela region con in connection with uh, the Chad, Nigeria, Burkina Faso, Mali, and Mauritanian countries. And this has been an ongoing effort and stating primarily for France security. What's interesting now is, for example, how Mali's, or the presence of, uh, or the now recent presence of the Wagner Group from Russian, or the Russian military, paramilitary Wagner Group in Mali has led to French withdrawal of troops from Mali, but not back to the homeland in contrast to what the United States did, but instead to the neighboring country Niger, as it still stated that their military presence in the country is of importance. But then this comes with how does this help? Of course, it helps to stabilize the region. But one argument I've recently heard is, as France is not only partaking in active military or partaking there militarily, they're also helping educate the armed forces of these countries as well as their security forces which might or which very much leads into as an imbalance in the country where 
the administration and organization of these military units becomes better and better off at handling the country. And as the security concern has ever increased, even though these efforts have been ongoing since 2014, the recent attacks have intensified. This leads a lot of the citizens of these countries to then look to the military for the support of uh, the security in these countries. And this might very well be a destabilizing factor for the region. That's very interesting, Isaac. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that would explain why, um, yeah, why the situ- the the population would like rather trust the like headmen of the of the military over over like the heads of um, civilian governments. Yeah. Because naturally, if someone is coming with coming at you with a gun, you don't turn to your next politician. You turn to the police or the military. <laughs> Absolutely. And on those wise words, <laughs> we will uh, play a little song and we'll be right back. You just heard Rome is Not a Town by Follow Me Home on Student Radio Nitio Tocomenio. And we've just been talking a bit about the recent coups in Western Africa, French military presence. We focused a lot on like security issues, but now we would like to know a bit more about the underlying factors of this like political instability and potential political solutions or ways to transform conflicts. Yes, so as we've seen, the situation in West Africa and the Sahel region is complex to say the least. But does that mean that a future characterized by peace and economic prosperity in this area should be dismissed as idealistic or unrealistic? Without stating to have any form of profound knowledge of the situation, we will now continue to briefly discuss the underlying issues, as Belina said, and explain the current increase of coups in the area, since identifying and exposing these are fundamental in order to implement programs that are effective, effectively will lead to sustainable peace for the people living there. And focusing on Mali, we can see that there are two major ethnic groups, the Dagon and the Fulani, where the first mentioned lives a life of traditional farming, whereas the second are semi-nomadic herders. And Mali saw an uprising in extremism in 2012, and since then, large parts of the country have fallen out of the control of the government. And historically, there hasn't been any major problems for the different groups to live side by side. But in recent years, the conflict has become more deadlier and increased in its shapes. And along the same line, an article from the VAO states that the distinction between ethnic conflicts and jihadist terror is becoming blurred. So why is that? I've taken part of interviews from civilians living in Mali and especially younger people in their 20s who were asked what they see as a root cause of the problems with growing extremism and the deadlier conflicts. And many stated that poverty is the main cause as it lures people into these uh, extremist organizations uh, and this is then based in a frustration over unemployment and uh, the government uh, as well as an equal distribution of national assets between the different groups. So they see this recruition as an opportunity for a job. 
and a way of living. So what does the literature say about this situation? Well, identity conflicts are believed to be more common in countries where hierarchical identity relations or status overlap with socioeconomic inequalities, such in this case. So in order to change this unequal division of power and assets, different constellations of coalition governments can be beneficial in order to ensure that the whole population of a country has a chance to be represented politically. However, we cannot assume that these groups are homogenous and that one representative will then cover each and everyone's uh, needs. And that is also something that we need to take into consideration when implementing resolutions. Definitely. Thanks a lot. And it, it seems that inclusive governance or lack thereof is really like at the heart of all these uh, issues. Thanks a lot, Karen, for these uh, insights. And we'll be back right after the break. You just heard Sjellen Ersvart on Student Radio Nitiotakomania. We are Radio UF. And after what Karen just said, I was thinking that a lot of conflicts, especially in on the African continent, are labeled as ethnic conflicts because it's kind of easier to, you know, not to delve into the root causes of the conflicts too much. But actually... A lot of times what is at stake is like power sharing or the redistribution of resources. And that seems to be something that's going to be even more problematic with like climate change. Going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Because as Karen explained, we see conflicts between different occupations and pastoralists and like people involved in like husbandry. And An ever-increasing problem in this region is a lack of water and Specifically now, considering how the population of Africa is continuing to increase, but West Africa is signified by the Sahara Desert, of course, that covers much of what we would consider West Africa. And a country like Nigeria, the most populous country in Africa, has the two major rivers originating from, or one at least passing through Niger, and the other one originating from Chad, which might very well lead to conflict, or be a problem if there ever is a conflict. But there is also, as a result of climate change, less water in the region and an increasing desertification. And even though upstream states might not do anything malicious, when there is droughts or strict variations that negatively affects the downstream countries, it might be perceived as an attack from the upstream ones, even though they don't intentionally do something to uh, contribute to this factor. It's just a way of life, which... When you're a farmer in the wasteland and you have less land that you can farm or less land for your animals to eat, you might not consider, oh, the climate is changing as it's more present to think of your neighbors at actively attacking you. But as Karen was also describing, this conflict between the nomads farming a more traditional or very traditional way and what we would consider traditional farming in an industrial sense necessarily come in conflict as there is less land to then farm which brings these uh, groups into areas that they have to contend for land which they might prior didn't have to. What I found really interesting in like reading a foreign policy article was that they were also linking what you just explained with like the military or like police forces. So I'm just going to try to summarize the article a bit, but foreign policy explained that there are frequent 
frequent cases of military, militia and police clashing with pastoralists who are forced to graze their livestock in contested terrains. And so the disputes often turn to violence due to, as you, you explained, Isaac, competition for water and pastoralists overusing farmers' fields or crops. And extremist networks are taking advantage of the violent competition between the farmers and the pastoralists to advance their causes. So it's really interesting because it explains also how, like, yeah, extremist groups are taking advantage of this situation. And then um, the tensions... Tensions flare up when local governments, governance and traditional customs for resolving disputes fail. And many times political and economic elites are also involved in exacerbating violent conflicts. So it's like a complex web of a constellation of actors. Yeah. And that's also interesting looking at the terrorist organizations operating in the area where some have ties with larger groups like ISIS. But... It's also described specifically in this region as very localized because mm -hmm. it's not a battle for territory as it stands currently, but attack on rivaling groups in local areas. Yeah, exactly. And we were discussing a bit prior the ties between Boko Haram and ISIS. And uh, yeah, it was a bit confusing. What Do you know anything about the issue, Karin? Or do you not with Boko Haram, uh, but just linking on to what Isaac said? about more Western powers maybe being interested in the conflict uh, as a way of ensuring that these terrorist cells won't grow or maybe mm -hmm. even make it to our part of the world. I believe that although that work, of course, is needed and very important, mm -hmm. it is also interesting to then again look at what is underneath it. Why does people actually become a part of these groups? And then we have, the, as we talked about, the climate issues and the scarcity of resources so yeah i think that we need to diverse the kind of interventions or the kind of progress yes because treating the symptoms is not a way to get rid of the disease no exactly and in this case terrorism is very much the symptom yeah. of greater problems in the region yeah for sure and we could talk a bit about boko haram and service failure and like stead fragility and so on but we've been talking for a little while so we'll take a song break and we'll be right back You just heard Omrodet by Lamix on Student Radio Nitiota Comenilla. We are Radio UF, broadcasting about um, the recent coups in West Africa. And as we were talking about really, um, religious extremism and jihadist groups, um, I thought we could talk a bit about Boko Haram because... What I found really interesting uh, with the case of Boko Haram in Nigeria is that it is a very emblematic case of uh, post-colonial weak states and their inability to deliver adequate services to the populations that leads to political unrest and, in some cases, religious extremism. Boko Haram's insurgency illustrates the latter phenomenon, falling within the broader trend of Salafi jihad jihadism and the revival of true Islam in an era of decay. Boko Haram's emergence has been enabled by peculiar socio-political conditions in Nigeria. The humanitarian crisis generated by the terrorists' action has exceeded national boundaries, reflecting complex emergencies of a globalized world. 
And what's really interesting in this case is that, is that there's a strong correlation between service failure and Boko Haram's emergence. According to Dan Suleiman, socio-political realities gave rise to Boko Haram. Um, and other scholars further state that Boko Haram was um, a response to the government's failure to provide Nigerians with public goods, as evidenced by unemployed youth making up the majority of the sex memberships, allured by consistent meals and social recognition. Social, social, inequality, social inequalities played a crucial role in the organization's rise, fueling narratives of discrimination and persecution against northern, northern Muslims. Service failure additionally explains the persistence of the group. So not only its emergence, but also its persistence. Um, as Oko and Al uh, explained, the operas op operational success of Boko Haram rests on the continuing inability of the Nigerian states to provide adequate security that ensure, ensures national prosperity. So... Um, Yeah, and it's also interesting because Niger, it's a very populous country, and of course, in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively poor. Ni but Wait, Niger or Nigeria? <laughs> Nigeria. <laughs> uh, but uh, Buku, the activities of Boko Haram in Nigeria has caused a lot of um, displacement of people mm -hmm. among what was estimated about 100,000 into Niger. And then in comparison to Nigeria, uh, even less wealthy country, which strains both the population of Niger, who has to move, Nigeria, who has to move, but also Niger. And it was estimated that currently there is about almost 300,000 of the totally 25 million people living in Niger uh, are displaced refugees. And this is, of course, a very important issue because it's easier, or because of the different refugee crises we have had with Europe and our un increasing unwillingness to have them here in our own country, countries, we, there is also a very important, or a importance to help in these African states so that they don't need to flee uh, from this violence. Yeah, and I also think that creates an interesting dilemma because at the same time, uh, you know, we talk about how you can't impose democracy on, mm -hmm. on a different society or you can't just copy-paste what you created in your country that's been successful for you and then, uh, yeah, believe that it will be the same result there. Um, so, yeah, that's really interesting, but... And I, I guess that the only way forward is like incorporating the local society in the process. Yeah. Yeah, and building trust and belief in their own societies yeah, exactly. to handle this. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That this is such a great point because when like researching a bit about like the um, underlying um, reasons of. Um, instability in the region I've, a term that was coming up a lot was cosmetic democracy Ooh. and the fact that like in a lot of countries um, you know perhaps the UN or other like foreign actors put
put a lot of emphasis on like, yeah, holding elections and like democratic institutions and so on. But then we end up with like situations in which institutions are democratic and like, yeah, elections are held, but then the rule of law is not respected. The judiciary is not independent. There's a lack of, and like what's most important is that there's a lack of informed and active participation of the citizens in the state matters. So like on paper, like, oh, this is great. The Western Africa is becoming more democratic. But if we focus on institutions and like projects results too much, then we miss out on uh, broader societal issues. And it's also interesting because these coups ties into um, some problems or some difficulties for the African Union, for example. Because as a result of some of these coups, some of the countries, not all, get excluded from the African Union unless they can prove a path to democracy or a normalization of the democracy or just holding elections. But there's also disputes then that people or like politicians that get corrupt or abuse their power while stay without having to do a coup but just abusing their presidential credentials don't face the same repercussions as a state that might go through a very people or uh, supported coup by the people Mm -hmm. and I, i wonder karen because I know that in the humanitarian sector, there's a big push for what is called localization Mm -hmm. and really trying to include like local actors more in the like relief efforts and so on. But like, how is it in the peace building sector? Like, yeah, how are local institutions and civil society included in most of the projects? Yeah, so what we've learned so far is that it's exactly the same mindset that you should do a like sort of bottom up mm-hmm. have a bottom up approach mm-hmm. um, and yeah just to tie to what you said earlier I think that the risk if we just implement things that we have uh, find mm-hmm. successful then it becomes sort of a um, artificial breathing so that mm-hmm. when the period of the program is over and everyone is going back home we just uh, they are left with basically no knowledge because someone else has dealt with it for them so if we don't include the local population uh, we don't give them the tools they need to then become independent and further develop a system that works in their society Mm. and in so many so many so many contexts there are so many like local ways of um, building peace and resolving conflicts and yeah let's say like non-traditional conflict resolution mechanisms but they're not often integrated into those like conflict resolu- like bigger broader like conflict resolution um frameworks yes but um we'll be right back you just heard saga by hooray for the riff raff on student radio nitio takomenio and um i was just reflecting on what we've been discussing and like foreign influence in uh, West Africa and so on. And yeah, I was thinking that foreign influence and strategic competition make coup actually more likely to occur. And something that I found really interesting was that there's a bit of a gray zone when it comes to the role of Russia um, 
that Russia played in the recent coups, as in like several cases, soldiers were behind the coups. Soldiers who were behind the coups had received like military training from Russia. But this is not a proof that Russia is actively, you know, fomenting the coups. And like, yeah, another interesting Russian actor um, that seems to be increasingly important on the African continent is the Wagner militia, which is a private military contractor um, currently supporting the Malian armed forces in their in their fights against jihadi extremists, for instance. And what is interesting is that the Malian government has like switched allies in this fight over the recent years, so like from the French troops to the Russian group. And some experts have shown that Wagner has connections with the Russian government. Um, and that it's like a quasi-state actor. And what's a bit concerning about this like Wagner militia is that according to security experts, um, the group has been fueling tensions where it operates in some, yeah, particularly in the Central African Republic and Libya, as it would have an interest in like maintaining some degree of instability to ensure the longevity of um, its contracts because it's a contractor. Mm. But yeah, talking about instability, I think Isaac has something important to say. <laughs> yeah, because we're discussing here how Niger might or is very affected by the attacks and what refugee crisis this causes in Africa. But we have some, we have one brewing at home as it stands. What do uh, you mean? Yeah, because uh, Putin woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, and <laughs> no, but. <laughs> Um, oh, is that why? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I. It's when you poke the bear enough, it comes awake, <laughs> as the saying goes. But if, or since the situation in Ukraine is currently escalating, it's been described that if ever there is a conflict brew or officially starting, Poland would be the first to, or apart from Ukraine feeling the direct pain, Poland would very much be a risk of feeling an indirect pain as a lot of Ukrainians might look to cross the border away from mm. uh, the conflict. But maybe that is a discussion for another day. Ooh, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> so thanks a lot, everyone, for listening to this episode and um, tune in next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.